I'd say that's pretty common in academia today. You know, when you have kind of a rival, somebody who might be a little bit better than you, you hope that they're executed, and then you weave their skin into a pocketbook. That's just how, that's how we academics think. I like to write early drafts of papers on the skin of my fallen enemies. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology, and anything else we're interested in. We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas. And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And yes, that's a real place. Our guest today is Darian Goldenstall. Darian is an artist and bookmaker, and she also happens to be my sister, but that is absolutely not why we invited her here. We invited her here for this spooky special Halloween episode because she knows a heck of a lot about the ghoulish things that physicians have done in the past. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you, Devin. Uh, that's right, I'm Darian Goldenstall. I'm a printmaker and bookmaker in Montreal, pursuing a PhD in humanities. And I am interested in how people, artists, how they portray themselves in artist books, particularly people who have had encounters with medicine. And an artist book for the uninitiated are handmade, small edition or one-of-a-kind books that employ text, image, the senses, and the duration and performance of turning pages as a piece of artwork in its totality. Darian, we ask all of our guests the same question, and I think that I know what your answer is going to be, but do you consider yourself to be a bioethicist? No. I know others have waffled on this question. I am in the camp of definitely not a bioethicist. Thank you for having me on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Darian, you've gone to a bioethics conference, though, so... I've been to a couple. Yeah. What are you doing <laughs> at those conferences? Often the humanities is a part of the title. Mm -hmm. I know you did an episode about ASBH, H being the humanities. Uh, so that is where I am intersecting with this field of bioethics. Good. And Darian, are there things that you've written that people could read that you want to promote right now, especially things that maybe we've written together? Wow. Great question. <laughs> uh, yes, as it happens, I would love to promote the edited volume of which I have written a chapter and contributed a lot of my artwork, Imaging and Imagining Illness, Becoming Whole in a Broken Body, edited by my lovely sister and co-host today, Devin Stahl. Shameless, shameless plug. So Darian, today in our special Halloween episode, you're going to talk a bit about some, and I don't want to give any spoilers at all because you'll tell this story better, of course, but how does this kind of legacy of grave robbing and the ways physicians acted in the past, how does that intersect with the work that you do? Well, as I mentioned, my research is at the intersection of medicine and bookmaking. And because I am a thorough scholar in the subject, that is also a longitudinal perspective into the way, way past. And in my research for my dissertation on this subject, 
I started to come across particularly ghoulish examples of handmade books. And that is what I'm here to talk with you all about today in this very special crossover podcast event with a podcast that doesn't exist yet, but will hopefully be coming into fruition early next year called Ethically Questionable, The Morbid Intersections of Art and Medicine. Cue spooky music. Cue spooky music. Exactly. So this will be kind of our first episode. And I will be recounting a tale from medical history. But I would love you, Tyler and Devin, to jump in at any point and give us some more insight into the bioethics issues that arise, the legacy of some of the practices, and let us know what would be done differently today. Sound good? Sounds great. I'm in. So the scene is Edinburgh, Scotland, 1827. William Hare and William Burke are Irish immigrants, gamblers and general 'er ne'er-do-wells who were looking to make some money. And they got turned on to the idea of selling cadavers to anatomists, quite the lucrative venture. So right away, I wanna take a step back and talk about this practice for a moment. Legally speaking, this is quite the gray area. There was nothing illegal about taking a corpse or grave robbing because a corpse was not designated as property. The only crime here being grand larceny for taking precious objects off corpses like jewelry or trespassing on the cemetery grounds. And in a really odd inconsistency, it was also perfectly legal to sell a corpse to an anatomist for dissection in order to cover burial costs. The exchange here would be a family member would bring the deceased corpse to the anatomist for kind of a loan. The anatomist would then pay to rent this cadaver in order to dissect it for medical purposes, whereupon the family member would come back, reclaim the cadaver, and then have the money to bury their family members. However, uh, a lot of people just didn't come back. They kept the money and never returned for their loved ones. And although it was perfectly legal for an anatomist to purchase the cadaver, they weren't allowed to then dispose of the body because then that would just be buying it outright instead of this loan agreement. What ended up happening was a lot of people would just show up at the mortuary, claim to be the deceased relatives, bring that corpse over to the anatomist, take the money and run. And this is what is known as the grave robbing. So contrary to images that you may be thinking of in your mind, it was often this taking of the corpse from the mortuary straight to the anatomist and not always digging up corpses from the graveyard. So once an anatomist, Uh, had in his possession a cadaver, they were not required to explain how they came upon this corpse uh, because it was not a crime for them to possess medical specimens, which was the legal designation of cadavers. So far, all of this seems super ethical to me. I don't know. How about you, Tyler? Yep. No concerns whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) So this is uh, this really legal gray area 
that empowered people like Heron Burke and so many others in the time period to sell corpses. The anatomists who bought them, in this case, in a kind of a network of privatized anatomical theaters called the Surgeon's Square in Edinburgh, would pay handsomely for these cadavers, no questions asked, no matter the condition. No matter the condition? Yep. You could show up with some older cadavers or some very fresh cadavers, and they would pay you on scale for those. So the fresher and more pristine the cadaver, the more money that you could stand to make. Sure, sure. Makes sense. Enter into the scene Robert Knox, a member of the Royal Society of Edinburgh who bought hundreds of cadavers this way so that he could hold nearly daily dissections at his anatomy school. And Knox's private anatomy theater was in very high demand because apparently the medical professors at the University of Edinburgh, such as Alexander Munro, more on him later, were terrible. Apparently they were very boring and not very good at their jobs because these professorships were appointed as gifts or handed down from father to son instead of on a merit basis. That doesn't happen today, but it has not stopped medical professors from being very, very boring. That's true. Okay. (laughs) That tradition is definitely carrying on. Good. (laughs) Glad to hear it. So because of the poor instruction that they received in university, the students would supplement their anatomy education elsewhere in these privatized for-profit anatomy education theaters, which were all competing with each other for student tuition. So the pressure was on for Knox to conduct very entertaining, flamboyant anatomical theater on a daily basis in order to keep his students. Therefore, he didn't really care where these bodies came from, even though they were certainly and obviously victims of murder. Murder? Murder? So uh, I imagine that how medical schools today come to have their cadavers is a bit different. Maybe ask a few more questions. Nope. (laughs) That's not true. So the way that medical schools get their bodies for their the, the gross anatomy classes is through a, a donation process where people donate their bodies to science or to the medical school. And it's, it's really kind of a lovely process where the person whose body is being donated, generally that's part of their will or their bequest, and the families honor that bequest. And then the students are able to get a lot of really... You know, high quality, hands-on educational experience from these these bodies. And I guess they could be murder victims. It's not excluded, but nobody comes to the back door with a body and says, uh, "Would you like to purchase this cadaver for your medical students?" And we say, "Sure." How much? As far as I know, that's not how it's happening. Okay, good. Glad to hear that uh, improvements have been made on the system. So Heron Burke were now officially resurrectionists. And the first person to um, be sold by Heron Burke was actually a person that they came across. Hare had owned a boarding house and one of his lodgers just so happened to pass away. So they quickly hurried his corpse over to Knox and sold his body for seven pounds, 14 shillings, which was more than six months worth of wages at the time and would calculate to $4,800 in today's money. 
Not bad. Uh, I would hope for more, honestly, but I guess that that uh, stretched out a bit more back then in the early 1800s. Are you saying crime doesn't pay or not enough? <laughs> well, that that part wasn't the crime yet, but you know, Harrenburg couldn't count on just stumbling across dead bodies all the time, so they quickly elevated their practice to murder. 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 <laughs> Murder. <laughs> they would lure sick people, alcoholics, prostitutes back to Hare's boarding house and smother them so that they could sell their corpses to Knox's school for around seven to ten pounds each. And like I mentioned earlier, the reason that they smothered their victims was so that the face was unharmed. There was no blood. It was a pristine corpse that could fetch a high price at Knox's school. And this practice, fun fact, now known as Burking after William Burke. Made him famous, I guess. Is a famous move. Or infamous, maybe. That's probably a better word. An infamous move. <laughs> Burking. At this time, I'd like to take another step back and talk about how this get rich quick scheme came into being. The reason why there was such a seedy black market for corpses was the Murder Act of 1752, which stipulated that only cadavers of criminals who were sentenced to anatomization or dissection for the severity of their crimes could be acquired for educational purposes. So this is a question I have for both of you. Why was dissection seen as such this terrible fate, the fit of the worst kinds of criminals? So we had talked a little bit before about how there is actually this pervasive myth that the church was against dissection. And so people think, oh, it was sacrilegious to a body, but the church didn't want you to do it. So therefore people thought it was really bad. This is actually just not true. So the Catholic church was condoning dissection way prior to this. Uh, this was like a 19th century later's myth that came about to prove how enlightened people were. That being said, I do think that there was, or at least from what I've read, this popular aversion to being dissected around this time, so 19th century, 18th century, and it wasn't about the church, it was actually about physicians. If you think about in this country and in Europe, physicians hadn't professionalized yet, and so there was still a lot of suspicion. Um, there was like one medical school in America, and most of the physicians were sort of trained differently. They didn't go to school necessarily, so their quality was really varying, and so people didn't always trust physicians. And so as we're like doing the, this anatomy stuff, not only are there all of these rumors that people are grave digging and, and taking your mother out of her grave and selling her off, I mean, that put people off as it would put me off. Whether it was really happening or not, there was that kind of urban legend that it was happening. That plus the idea that we don't trust doctors, I think combined made the idea of giving your body to science like we do today, just a very different landscape. I think it's interesting to think about capital punishment and kind of the ways in which the government tries to punish people to deter bad, bad behavior, right? So you think about somebody being executed, particularly you know centuries ago when they would not only be executed, but they'd also be drawn and quartered, or they'd also be burned at the stake, or they'd also have these other things done to their body in addition to dying as a heightened type of punishment. So I think that's probably where this comes from. Are there any contemporary equivalences of this 
extra life for a corpse after death. So there was this program that's been around since the late 80s called the Visible Human Project, in which they took a representative man and a representative woman, and um, they dissected them in such a way that they could make their bodies digitized. So they put them into a virtual program. So now you can dissect them and look at different pieces of them through a, a computerized program. And what you say about uh, capital punishment reminds me that the man they chose actually was on death row, but he had agreed to have his body used in this particular way. So that's another way in which the intersection of capital punishment and the normalization of bodies gets instantiated in medical education. That's quite interesting because I've also heard of artists who have downloaded the Visible Human Project cadavers and use those for their art making purposes. I think that there's a few different intersections here of art and medicine happening in this tale. And what you say also reminds me of some of the consequences of this law that only executed criminals could be purchased by medical schools. And it's that it's hard to study diseases like dropsy or venereal diseases or tuberculosis, which were ravaging the countries at the time, unless the criminal also happened to be suffering from them. So I think that our knowledge of pathology was hindered by this law as well. And in addition to this, it also meant that our knowledge of female anatomy was far less developed than that of male anatomy, as there were far fewer women who were executed. So the opportunity for students to study and learn anatomy and dissection wasn't possible on a female body. Is that what you're saying? It would have been possible, but the vast majority of people who were executed also happened to be male. So the opportunity to study female anatomy just wasn't there yet or wasn't as easily conducted. And I think that that may have had unintended consequences for today, where we just know so much more about male bodies than female bodies. Yeah, I think that's that seems to be true, or at least tracks that there's some contemporary analogies to that. So I was reading something recently that said that there actually were medievalists who were dissecting female bodies, and that later um, their editors would kind of crop out parts of female anatomy from the books. They would literally like take an X-Acto knife and kind of cut out the, the women's body parts because they were at, at some points in history seen as more scandalous than other parts of history. So, I mean, there was some of that going on, but you, you see that today with like clinical research trials. For a long time, it was the standard when you, you wanted to use human subjects that you needed to have special protections for women who were pregnant, which makes total sense, right? You don't want to be doing conducting experiments on pregnant women, potentially hurting their fetuses if you don't have to. But that meant that a lot of clinical researchers would just exclude all women of childbearing age from research studies. So if you wanted to test out a drug to see if it worked on people, you were worried about those special protections for pregnant women. And not all women know they're pregnant when they're in your study. So the best way to you know, safeguard against hurting anyone is just to exclude them altogether. But then that meant, I mean, think about childbearing age. That meant that women between puberty and somewhere later in their life, 50, 60, they just couldn't be part of medical trials, which meant that a lot of medicine that we use today actually has never been properly tested on women. And that only changed in the early 90s when the National Institutes of Health said, okay, we have a problem. We actually don't know how medicines work on women because the assumption was, well, women just have slightly smaller bodies than men. 
And so we can just adjust accordingly. But it turns out that women's bodies are slightly more complicated than just being tiny men's bodies. You don't say. Go figure. <laughs> so what you're saying is women are different than men? I mean, I don't want to start a controversy here. I don't want to get into to everything that that means. But yes, people who are sexed female have different bodies and drugs interact with those bodies in different ways. And we're only now learning more about that because the National Institutes of Health started demanding that researchers include women. But we deviate. Sorry, Darian. Get back to your story. The story of murder. Over the next two years, Burke and Hare murdered 15 people and sold their bodies to the no-questions-asked Knox. This whole arrangement came crashing to a halt when another one of Hare's boarding house lodgers discovered the body of their last victim before the pair had a chance to sell her to Knox. And the two were immediately arrested upon suspicion of murder. Hare confesses straight away to murdering 16 people with Burke. And because of his cooperation and testimony against Burke, known as turning King's evidence, Hare got complete immunity and was released. What? Immunity? He was a serial killer. 16 people, holy moly. Yeah, he was just the first one to turn. So he got complete immunity, skipped town, and literally no one knows what happened to him after that. Tyler, I mean, is that how it works today? You're the lawyer. No, it's... Well, maybe. Yeah, sometimes they people can get immunity for, um, you know, turning states, we call it states evidence in the United States, but testifying against their co-conspirators or their co-criminals. Yeah. Although I don't, I can't see a prosecutor letting some guy walk with 16 murders, but who knows? Knox also was not charged with any crimes whatsoever. Darian, what? Because of these gray loopholes... Uh, that occurs in the procurement of cadavers, Knox wasn't seen to have done anything wrong, especially in comparison to all of his contemporaries who were doing the exact same thing. And his reputation did take a hit. An angry mob showed up at his house and busted up his windows. But the notoriety actually made his anatomical theater more popular than ever. And he was commanding over 500 students a day for his dissections. However, the school's popularity did begin to wane once the University of Edinburgh made their anatomy classes mandatory for their students and forbade them for getting credit for private anatomy classes. You'll be happy to hear that Burke was held responsible for these crimes. He was sentenced to death and hanged just two years after the start of their criminal spree in 1829. His hanging was said to be attended by 25,000 people, many of whom camped out in the pouring rain for over 24 hours in order to get a good seat. And in a kind of cosmic, satisfying symmetry, Burke was also sentenced for public dissection to share the same fate of his victims. He really got his comeuppance, didn't he? He did. So the notoriety of the Burke and Hare crimes highlighted the system that made the black market for corpses so tempting and profitable in the first place. As a direct result of this trial, Parliament quickly passed the Anatomy Act of 1832, which made it legal to dissect any unclaimed corpse which happened to mostly consist of the extremely poor. 
So you may be asking, what does this have to do with books? What does this have to do with art? I was promised some kind of intersection of bookmaking and art at the beginning of this podcast. I'm so glad you said that because we were all thinking it. Yeah, I knew it. <laughs> well, you may have been familiar with the Hare and Burke story. It is quite infamous. But you may not be familiar with what happened next. Burke's punishment continued even after his death and his dissection, as his corpse was guaranteed to never receive a Christian burial. His skeleton hangs to this day at the Edinburgh Medical School. Lord Justice Clerk David Boyle, who presided over the Burke case, decreed that it would be preserved and displayed, saying, quote, I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved in order that posterity may keep in remembrance of your atrocious crimes. And so it was. Alongside this skeleton, there is also a letter that is said to have been written in Burke's blood. And what I find most astonishing, a little leather pocketbook with a gold leaf filigree pattern around the edges and a title impressed on its leather surface, Burke's skin pocketbook. Nope, that's, nope, that's so gross. Wait, was it made out of skin? It was made out of Burke's skin. Wow, that's gross. His flesh was turned into a book and I was doing a lot of research and I could not find exactly how this book came into being, but it was not terribly uncommon for anatomists to take the flesh of the cadavers that they're working with and use the skin to bind books, either of their murderous crimes or other kinds of books on anatomy. This practice is known as anthropodermic bibliophagy. But I will say that this book is a little bit different. It doesn't cover a, a narrative of Burke's crimes, nor is it a book of anatomy. It is a little folder that is meant to hold pages or business cards that could be inserted or replaced and it even has a little pen holder loop on the edge so that you can easily take notes. Oh my gosh, that is creepy, Darian. But this is not the only pocketbook made from Burke's skin. There is another wallet handed down through the generations to be in continuous use until it was put up for auction fairly recently and was purchased by the kitschy haunted walking tour business called the Katie's End Witchery Tour, who now displays one of the wallets in their gift shop. You might be interested to know that it was none other than Professor Alexander Monroe, the boring anatomy professor at the University of Edinburgh who performed this dissection and had Burke's flesh turned into these wallets. That kind of wraps up my sordid tale of Burke his life and his uh, interesting afterlife and what happened to his body. I have a lingering question for both of you, and I was hoping you might shed some more light on how cadavers are shown more dignity today, even if they were from criminals. Yeah, so I think there's two ways to answer that question. The first is that they absolutely are, and the second is that they absolutely are not. And I think both of those things are true depending on where your corpse goes. I've worked 
in a medical school. Tyler works in medical school. I've done some teaching in the gross anatomy lab. So this is the place where you will dissect a cadaver if you're in medical school. When you enter a gross anatomy lab, it does often feel like a different space. People are a little bit more sober. There's this stress by the people who run those labs to really honor the bodies that are in front of you, to treat them with a certain amount of respect, acknowledging that they're a gift to the medical student so that they can learn. And so that is kind of cultivated in gross anatomy labs all over the country. Is that your experience, Tyler? Yeah, and there's nothing that would get a medical student kicked out of medical school quicker than being disrespectful to their to the cadaver that they are that they're using. In our medical school, actually, we we have a very similar uh, ceremony, and we also have a piece of art installed in our lobby that is actually a, it's a tree growing out of the floor, and each leaf represents a body that has been donated. So as the medical school continues to to grow and get bigger, that tree, that piece of installation art will continue to grow. It's really quite quite beautiful and quite striking. But on the other hand, if you don't donate it to a medical school or some sort of reputable area, in our research for doing this podcast, we ran across this completely mind-blowing, unregulated market of bodies that are being used, procured, dissected, and and shipped and sold all over the country. And so this, this happens in order to allow people who are doing research or people who are doing so research on either the anatomy itself or people doing research on medical devices or some basic science research to have the materials that they need in order to conduct their research. And um, there's a fascinating investigative report on the Reuters website that we can will link to in our show notes about this very unregulated interstate market of people who are basically, you know, body brokers who are getting these bodies, sometimes paying for the cremation costs of people who otherwise couldn't afford it, and piecing out these bodies and getting the, the material or the tissues or the sometimes whole bodies to the into the hands of researchers in order for them to, to do their work. So really fascinating and mind-blowing stories about how those those companies, some are for-profit, some are not-for-profit, really interesting stories. And Mary Roach has a great book on this, of all the ways in which if you donate your body to science, it might be used that people have no idea about. So you might be put on a body farm, so forensic scientists can research kind of how bodies decompose, so that when they come across crime scenes, they know how long the body's been dead. You could be used as a crash test dummy, so we could put you in a car and crash it to see how the body would sustain impact from the car itself. And you could be used in um, military research. So we could put you in a field and have a bomb kind of explode near you and see what kind of the impact that would have on a body. Because people think when they donate their bodies to science, they're always going to medical schools. But there's all sorts of reasons we actually need to use cadavers in a lot of research because like a body double, a, a made body doesn't really cut it. I had no idea. Darian, thanks so much for being with us. This is really fun. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Halloween. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing and performing Rekity Music. For show notes, visit bioethicsforthepeople.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. do you think you could make out of our skin at least four the longer this uh quarantine goes on the the more skin i have so you can make more wallets of my skin